Morning, everybody, and thanks for joining us. Um, my name is Dr. Elise Lang. I'm a GP in Cardiff and also a Macmillan GP advisor. It's Wednesday, the 29th of July, 2020, and we're continuing our conversations around changing face of um, community medicine with COVID-19 this year. I've got two colleagues with me, um, Dr. Rachel Lee, who's been here before. Rachel, would you like to introduce yourself? Oh, hi. Thank you, Elise. So I'm Rachel Lee. I'm a GP in Cardiff. I'm also a Macmillan GP advisor for Wales. Thank you. And um, a very high profile and um, great colleague to have with us this morning. We've got Mark Talbot, who's one of the palliative care consultants in Belindra Hospital, the Cancer Hospital in Cardiff. Mark, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, but I don't know why you're saying high profile. Uh, <laughs> that makes me feel very embarrassed. Um, yes, my name is uh, Mark Talbot. I'm a consultant in palliative medicine. Uh, I've, um, I've worked as a, as a hospital doctor and I've worked as a GP in the past uh, as well. And I've got an interest in advanced and future care planning and also in the sometimes difficult topic of DNA CPR as well. Thank you both for joining us. Um, Mark, I think I used the term high profile because you've done an awful lot of sort of public facing and media facing work over the last couple of years and a couple of sort of headline articles, really. And I've seen an article from you during COVID times as well. Um, we're sitting now in July, uh, hopefully, you know, a, a sort of period of relative calm where we, we've got through COVID through the spring, but we are apprehensive about a second wave in the UK. And and you did an article which I read and, and sort of heard co coverage on about how difficult these conversations can be remotely. And I know that in primary care particularly, we are doing a lot of our consultations now through virtual media, you know, through telephone or through a Skype call. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about, you know, your hints and tips about how to do these remote consultations as well as we can. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Um, I think COVID-19 hit, hit us all in the community and in hospital settings like a complete sledgehammer. And the the thing that I noticed quite early on was... Um, I switched quite early on to remote video consultations and, and phone consultations. So my outpatient clinic on a Thursday uh, pretty much went completely to that. But number one, the patients didn't really want to come into the hospital because you know of, of the risk of potentially potentially contracting something. And, and number two, um, you know, it was just the sort of way that we had to set things up and, and reduce the footfall into the hospital as well. So lots of video consultations and telephone consultations. Um, yet the difficult topics remained within within those palliative care clinics. Um, <clears throat> so I noticed that um, myself and also some colleagues were having uh, conversations about advanced care planning, future care planning, and even conversations about future wishes around CPR via the telephone or via video, which is absolutely something I would have in the past said to, to all of my trainees or various colleagues, it's probably something you would want to avoid. And it's really a conversation where you would want to be face to face with a family or a patient or someone like that. So there was a really striking um, observation um, quite quite early on. And, th and then also working, say, in places like Clandock Hospital, <clears throat> I was um, one particular day on the wards. I was in the same office with the junior doctors. It was we were trying to sort of maintain safe distancing while still wearing PPE. And um, <clears throat> I heard this junior doctor you know, have a conversation uh, with a relative who hadn't seen the, the mother for many, many days um, that the mother had died of COVID-19 in, in the hospital. And this this was sort of over the phone. And 
when he finished, I sort of said, are you, are you okay? Are you all right? And um, he, he was pretty okay with it. But then he shocked me to saying this was the third conversation he'd had over the phone um, in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a row. Uh, and I said, oh, you, you need to have a break. This is, um, this is, this is really tough. Um, so yeah, those two stories kind of inspired me to write the article you just mentioned, uh, for, for, for the BBC, um, because they'd been in touch and wanted to sort of hear what was going on on the front line, both in the community settings and in the hospital settings. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was just quite striking really how, how things changed so fundamentally. And I, I just, I suspect strongly the the same thing happened for, for the guys in, in primary care. In, in the community settings as well, the remote consultations was just a sort of a bit bit of an adrenaline rush when when you jumped into it. I suspect Elise and Rachel when when you had to start doing this, and I suspect there was some easy stuff and some difficult stuff in there. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you know that as you say, there was an adrenaline rush. Certainly, you know, work became more of a roller coaster than it has ever been, wasn't it? But um, we we certainly did do lots of conversations over the phone, more so than usual. And I know the other story that got some media attention in Wales, which I don't necessarily want to focus on, but it was relevant to what we were doing, which is we were directly contacting certain patients that we felt were in at-risk groups. So particularly, for example, some patients on our palliative care register who were nearing the end of life, but perhaps didn't have DNA CPR paperwork ready or ACP plans that we had copies of. And we were directly contacting them, but without them requesting the call to try and have a further discussion very delicately about whether they had any wishes and whether those wishes had changed in light of COVID-19. And they weren't always conversations that the patient was willing to have there and then, but to kind of leave the sort of seed and just sow the seed and then come back to it when it was relevant. And I think that was what I was sort of really imploring to my colleagues in the practice is, you know, you've got to work at the patient's pace on this, however urgent you feel the conversation is. If they don't want to get involved in it, it's really hard to start, isn't it? Because it, it, it's yeah. a really important conversation. And whilst in our line of work, we think people ought to consider it, all of us should consider it. Even when you're told you've got a terminal diagnosis, it isn't what everybody is prepared to talk to. So I wonder whether particularly, you know, in light of any conversations we might have in the future, whether you have any hints or tips about um, how we can start those conversations in the most appropriate manner. Yes, I mean, it, it, there was a real flurry of activity at the start of COVID-19. And I remember going to meetings and I remember uh, meeting you in a few meetings as well, Elise, about how we would approach it and what we would do. And everyone was saying this is going to be a palliative pandemic, a really sort of um, a, a pandemic with a real palliative care headline. And we, we need to do advanced care planning. And I think as so often happens when when you go into sort of a near, near panic mode, everyone thought, OK, we, we're going to have to have more really detailed and good advanced care planning conversations. And, and lots of people did. And lots of people did an absolutely brilliant job. And I have, have actually what you don't hear in the press is that I have patients who said, you know, it was really important that you have this conversation. Or I've got relatives who said, you know, my GP talked to me about this and about my mother. And it was really important that we had that chat because it's something that we had been putting off for some time and it really need to, needed to be talked about. So I think whilst the press will focus on the really bad ones and, you know, rightly so, maybe, I think 99% of them were actually very good and people like, yourself, Elise, or, or Rachel would have had really um, individual conversations, really bespoke conversations for for, for each patient or, or each person in a nursing home, for instance, and would have never 
sort of applied sort of blanket approaches to, to, to entire groups, which in my view is a completely wrong thing to do. So we have to balance this thing of wanting to do really good advanced care planning for all the patients who might need it versus also saying it has to be super individualized, it has to be very bespoke, and it has to be an offer of advanced care planning rather than actually forcing it on anyone who doesn't want to have that conversation. I mean, it must be the worst thing in the world if you're sensitive to those sorts of conversations and your GP uh, you know, knocks at your door every week and says, oh, can we have that conversation about DNA CTR now that we didn't want to have last week? You know, that would be very insensitive. So it has to be a, an, an offer. And I will struggle with people who say to me, Mark, you can't make it an offer because you have to make it a mandate for GPs and, and uh, hospital doctors to do this. Otherwise, they won't do it. I, I think that's terribly patronizing. And I also think, you know, and you've got me on my sort of um, an area that I'm quite, um, I, I get quite uh, passionate about. I, I also don't think that um, you, you can ever have targets for this sort of thing. It's, I think it's a terrible idea to have targets for this sort of thing. You know, what, what targets? What, what do you want to achieve? We want to achieve something good. We want to achieve something of value. Um, and and um, that it must always remain an offer. So if you suddenly say, oh, you have to have, you know, 95% of your, your, your patients in this area should have had an advanced care planning conversation, that isn't going to work. And the, the quality of these conversations is always going to really vary. But what I think is really important in this is that um, you constantly, constantly, constantly need to put, put education in. And that's what I'm, I'm really passionate about. And, and, and if I drone on about the same topic in the same subject, for instance, of good DNA CPR conversation is because I'm always finding that there's more and more people who still haven't heard it. You know, so you, you, you kind of carry on and you think of people, people like Elise or Rachel be fed up to the teeth of hearing me talk about this topic, but actually it's not necessarily you that I'm trying to, to get. It's the people who haven't yet heard about this. So it's the junior doctor on the ward who have heard behind closed curtains talking about jumping around on a chest or something like that. And, and those sorts of communications where you can really say, okay, there's something we can maybe address and, and, and get, it be, get it better in a slightly you know, more constructive way. So I think experienced people like yourself have really good conversations on this topic. It has to be an offer of advanced and future care planning conversations to a person. If they decline that offer, you might be causing actually significant harm if you keep banging on about it and actually force it force it down their throat um and also an acceptance that we won't do good advanced and future care planning for everyone there are going to be patients where it doesn't happen for one or other reasons it's been awkward to talk about or they didn't want to talk about it and shock horror they don't have a dna cpr form or an advanced care planning form and you know a uh, hundred people later on are terribly critical that that didn't wasn't the case but we know very well, sometimes the person sits opposite you, you'd really like to address the topic and bring it up, but you can't. It's completely appropriate for that situation, and the patient has put on, put up barriers so that you don't actually um, talk about this, and, and that just occasionally happens. So there's an acceptance that we can't be black or white, we can't be 100% or 0%, there's many grey areas in this, and we just have to work with those grey areas, and that's difficult for some, I think. There's my run to over. Oh, no, I think, it, I think it's very valid. And, and I'd like to think, certainly in Wales, that we aren't numerically target driven to get, you know, 100% of our 
XYZ list to all have a DNA CPR ACP. I certainly don't, you know, fulfill any of those criteria. I think, as you say, it has to be done appropriately and sensitively and you're never going to achieve 100% because you know, that there's always going to be people who aren't comfortable with those conversations. I think the thing that, you know, we, we're in a phase of now and, and perhaps so during the pandemic sort of peak as well in Wales was that sometimes you'd have um, surprise conversations about ACP as well, where, where someone who you wouldn't consider necessarily it needed to be done soon, but wanted to have their wishes documented and things. Um, and I know that we're going to do a later podcast with the ACP nurses in Wales, but I guess, you know, any sort of um, suggestions and, and including how best to record and how best to share, you know, anything that's worked well in the hospital that we can do better to help you where we might have had opportunistic or, or sort of spontaneous conversations. Because I, I certainly find sometimes more challenging ones are where a patient at the end of a long consultation just says, oh, and I never want to go to hospital again. Yeah, and yeah, and yeah. it kind of takes you off guard. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just trying to think of if you had a, a, a very good uh, DNA CPR conversation um, with someone yesterday on, on the ward round, and it just flowed very easily. So I'm someone who I respond to a lot of the cues in the conversation. And then if, if a patient says a certain word, um, like uses the word like the end, for instance, when I think about the end, then I'll ask them a little bit more uh, about what they meant by that and, and ask them a few open questions around that. Um, and then typically, I mean, I often, I often when it comes to, say, DNA CPR, for instance, conversations, I, I talk about all the different options that might be available in the future in hospitals. Um, the, the problem that some patients, you're right, they do say, oh, if I, I don't want to ever go into hospital again. But then you say to them, look, you don't, you're saying that now, but what if you fall down the stairs and break your hand? Would you not want to see someone about that? And they say, oh, yeah, I, I would want to go to hospital for that. And, and, and so you sort of have to break it down into the individual things that might come up in the future as a probability. You can come up with six or seven of them, and the patient might, might want to go for five of them. But the, the, the big one, you know, about going to ITU or having your heart restarted when it's already stopped, the sixth one, they say, oh, no, thank you, not, I have the other five, but not, not the number six, that, that's, not, that's not for me, really. So if you put it in, in, in that way, um, that's really important. And I think the second thing is that um, I think, I, I'm, I'm going to be careful about how I phrase this, but um when i suppose when you go to i've been to the garage this morning to bring my car in because there's a problem with the cylinder now if my if if gary the guy in canton cross motors said to me oh mark um um there's this and this problem what do you want to do about it i would sort of say well gary you're the mechanic you you kind of give me some advice you're the expert i would like to listen to your advice uh, on what you would you would go with and what the options are I think I think as doctors and as nurses, we do have to kind of give our opinion a little bit on what we think is right and what we think doesn't work. And so I often say to to my patients and their family members as well, look, um, all the different treatments, some of them I think would work. CPR, I don't think would work. I don't think you would, you know, in stark terms, survive it. And it would be very, very traumatic. My my view is that um, CPR shouldn't be given in the situation. But, you know, that's my, my honest opinion. Of course, before getting to that point, I've explored with them whether they're actually willing to continue with the conversation because it's, it's not an easy one. But I'll just say, look, 
this is my, my honest view, we're talking very frankly at the moment, and this is really one intervention where I really don't think it would have any chance of working. And if, if there was any chance it did work, then these and these would be the consequences. And I really don't recommend it. And, and as a team, we wouldn't recommend it. Um, but I also want to hear your views about that. Okay, so, and, and then usually most people sort of say, you know, what on the whole, I've had a little think about it and what you've said makes sense. Let me have a little think about it and I'll get back to you. Or, I'll, or they'll say, no, I agree with your view. I'll, I'll, I'll come in for, you know, the antibiotics. I'll come in for the blood transfusions and various other things. But um, CPR, electric shocks to the chest and um, deep, deep compressions in, into the chest to restart my heart and all those things. Though that, that is not something I can foresee myself if it's already, my heart is already stopped. I don't want it. Thank you very much. And then you 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 talk it through around those levels. But I think if you if you come to the patient and say, "Oh, um, Mrs. Um, Mrs. Smith, do you would you like to have um, CPR, or would you would you not like it? So would you like someone to jump around on your chest and give you electric check, uh, shocks to the chest? That's not going to work. You know, people find that really strange thing to to to, to say. It's like um, like Gary, the mechanic, saying your brakes are not working. Would you like me to change them or not? You know, it's, it's sort of you know that that, that doesn't really work for me. Um, so I'm, I'm quite specific about the advice that I give, and then I explore the views that the person might have about that. I think that's really helpful advice, Mark. Thank you. I think that's sort of contextualising it and. You know, the conversations that I've had, particularly remotely, um, you know, often with a relative of someone who may have dementia, for example, in a, in a care home. And to say that this isn't anything about care, you know, this doesn't stop us doing anything. We are talking about, you know, down the line from that when mum and dad is more poorly. And actually, if they were to have their heart stop overnight and really sort of clarify what we're talking about, because I think, in a, you know, there is a sort of a comparison that DNA CPR means you know not treating as well sometimes and it's trying to make sure that everyone really understands that yeah exactly I mean I don't use ceilings of care I say ceilings of treatment yeah. because care is universal and we we can always really give good care I've seen some you know and Rachel will be able to agree with us I'm sure I've seen some amazing care in, in nursing homes and, and other places and even paramedics coming in and not giving CPR but actually giving good care to the family members, giving comfort care and various things to the, the, the patient as well. Care doesn't have to stop when one particular intervention that we all obsess about um, comes comes into this as well. Um, yeah, I don't know. Rachel, have you got any like good top tips for, for some of these like uh, conversations say in, in nursing homes when, when you go in? Because it's been a little while since I've been in a nursing home, I, I do admit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no I agree I think you know that you can see some fantastic caring from you know obviously the staff in the nursing homes are usually very close to their residents um, and really care and you know do get very upset if they lose a resident and you know that comes through in the quality of care that they give and I think um, you're right you do see you know if if it comes to the point where the 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 residents heart stops um, you do see very good care not providing CPR because that wouldn't be appropriate for that, that stage of the person's illness. And, you know, so we've been able to have those conversations with the family and the resident if they have the capacity, you know, before it happens. So they, they understand, as Elise says, that, you know, it's not that we're withdrawing care, we're, we're allowing a natural, dignified death at the mm -hmm. time when, when treatment wouldn't make any difference. 
Um, mm. And I think that's where, you know, it is important to try to have those conversations beforehand, but obviously sometimes the conversations haven't been had and it's it's supporting staff and paramedics to, if it, if it isn't appropriate at the time, um, yeah. that a patient perhaps, you know, does get to that stage where, you know, CPR would be futile to be allow, allowing a natural death, but definitely supporting the family at the same time. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think it is important to, you know, to to allow families to understand, you know, that that CPR is just one part of the of the whole process. And I think there is that big misconception, as Elisa said, that we're withdrawing care completely. But absolutely, it almost means we're we're being more caring and providing much more appropriate and dignified care when appropriate. I think um, Julian Abel, uh, who um, does a lot of the compassionate community stuff in the United Kingdom, um, would would second that. And he always says to me, Mark, we we always obsess about DNA CPR when it comes to advanced care planning and and these these conversations. When really what we should should be asking more is our opening question um, as GPs and nurses and hospital doctors is what matters most to you? What what matters most to you in the last weeks of life, the last months of life? And when I've asked that question, you know, we've eventually talked about things like DNA CPR, but it's a sort of follow-on conversation, really. Um, There was one recently where the answer was my hair. So the lady said, what matters to you? I said, what matters most to you? uh, Thinking there would be some big philosophical uh, response. And she said, my hair matters most to me. And I said, what do you mean? said, well, you know, if, if I'm less well, I really would hate it if my hair went messy. And I would want people to look after my hair a bit and make sure that on every day it looks nice. So if visitors come, you know, it doesn't look, look terrible. And I went, oh, okay, you know, that's that, that's care. So, you know, if you <laughs> if you have a DNA CPR form, it doesn't mean that we don't need to harm to your hair, you know. And, and I think that's where I talk about ceilings of care or ceilings of treatment as such rather than ceilings of care because... I'm, I'm pretty sure that her hair was looked after. Yeah. I, that, that's really powerful, Mark. And I think that's a, an opening phrase I'm going to take from this as well. And I know Rachel probably will use it in her practice, I would have thought, Rachel. Yeah. And just to add to that, actually, I've been given a very different perspective about um, wishes at end of life from our new Macmillan Community Connector. So she's part of the Compassionate Community Work. And she she's non-medical and she's been talking about death plans so similar to you have having birth plans and it's it's a very different perspective and it has made me think on things very differently so similar to your example of the hair mark it's um you know patients may want a favorite blanket covering them when they're reaching the end of life they they can specify who they would like with them photos they'd like to have by their bed and again i think in the medical profession that's not something we consider we're very much about the medical side and the treatment. And I think, you know, we need to look at the whole person and actually what what is important to them. And I think that's a fantastic question that has really changed my perspective now when I'm talking to people about their wishes. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so, I mean, the same for me as well. When you when you talk about something general, more general, sort of what, what happens, what matters most to you towards, towards the end, maybe, or what would be most important to you, um, the conversations are so interesting, but they also lead on to the stuff that um, that 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 we then that we tend to obsess about all the other stuff. 
but you can have those you can nearly have those as an afterthought when those come so when you've talked about you know favorite blankets or hair or the dog or you know the you know the pets or whatever that that, that establishes a connection and then later on it's often called the second conversation or the third conversation is that you can also say you know what about these these and these interventions and and you can you can deal with it then so maybe it should be done in that order but um but yeah yeah, I think that's really powerful. And the other comment that kind of passed by quite quickly in your answer to a previous question was the use of reflection, um, which having done the Cardiff Diploma in Palliative Medicine, Rachel and I both did it, you know, that was part of the communication skills toolkit that they pushed there. And that's sort of picking up on the, the cues, of, uh, the verbal cues, because um, I think communication skills in medical school were a while ago for myself and you know you think you can communicate okay, uh, but you do need to be refreshed on what's good. And, and that reflection does help because it's often the elephant in the room, isn't it? That the thing that they've kind of brushed over by using a term like the end. Um, and actually, if you can then pick up on it and say it back to them, you know, what, what, what do you mean by the end? That, that it does yeah. open it up again. And I think, but I also think communication skills need a pit stop occasionally because you often hear like colleagues in hospitals say, well, I did a communication skills course when I was a registrar 20 years ago. Um, and you can sort of see that they could do with a new one. So, so even if you're not learning necessarily, um, you know, you're teaching granny to suck eggs, basically, but you can you can always do with a refresher and you always learn something new. I, I need constant refreshers on this. You need to give yourself a pit stop and a refresher on communication skills once in a while. Um, otherwise, you get rusty, I think. Absolutely. Normally we have Fiona Rawlinson is one of your colleagues on these calls and, and she does a sort of communication skills update. And as a consequence, I've been a... Um, another team member delivering a course with her but therefore had the opportunity to hear her deliver that course on a couple of occasions in recent years and every time you know it's something different each time that you pick up and even though you've probably heard the content time and time again but actually think oh that would have helped yesterday actually you know I should have done more of that and, and it is important yeah um just a way of time really we've got another couple of minutes but uh, um, I just wonder whether um you know just going back a little bit again just talking about ACPs advanced care plans um I think it was really helpful Mark what you said about sort of almost specifying out when when would these things apply you know would you want to go to hospital if you fell down the stairs or, or if x y or z happened and I guess from my point of view whilst I've had those conversations my and I'm I would consider myself one of the more experienced clinicians in the practice to have these conversations I would also worry that I hadn't asked about everything because you're clearly not going to be able to cover everything but is there kind of a, a category you know when you say you've got five or six things that you'd normally ask is that something that we should kind of focus on or do they vary to the individual? Oh, they're, they're just so so individual. I mean, you you, you might have someone where it, you know the dialysis would need to be discussed in more detail if if they became more unwell, for instance, and then you discuss through those things. And yeah, it's it's it, it's it's tough because I think you, you want to plan these things in, in some detail, but the you know the the plans may change if you throw one complex further factor into into the whole mix again. And, and people change their minds as well, just to some degree. But if, if, if zero planning has happened at all on this, and then it's the Saturday afternoon or bank holiday Sunday or something like that, and, and no one knows at all what's happened, and there's, there's no plan that Elise has left there, then I have zero to go on, you know? So if there's something there where a narrative has been written down and Elise has written, you've written down something like, isn't this conversation happened? then I can tap into the mindset of the patient a little bit, the patient who I may not know, say if it's an out-of-hours GP, for instance, and kind of go, 
Ah, uh, okay. So generally speaking, said you know doesn't wants to. Uh, doesn't mind going into hospital as she has spent a lot of time in hospital and it's really important that he gets to the grandson's next birthday. So he wants to do absolutely everything. Okay. I know that now. So I would probably be more inclined to admit versus someone who says absolutely hates hospitals, really doesn't like it, wakes up and is in hospital. And then, then is really upset about it. You know, that gives you a completely different perspective. And if that's written down, then that's great. Thank you, Mark. And, and just final question, really, although I might do a quick summary at the end, um, would be one of my colleagues, when we were sort of in, in the peak of, um, you know, April and, and March, when it was a lot of COVID numbers, was actually quite worried about doing some of these ACP and DNA, well, less of the DNA CPR conversations, but from the point of view that actually if you've got mum's wish that she didn't want to go into hospital, but actually, you know, she was really distressed at home, that then doing something almost against her wishes because COVID dictated it because they were more poorly, um, that they felt that might be a harder conversation then to have with the bereaved because we went against, in inverted commas, mum's wishes because what we felt was a clinical need at the time. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess, how do you feel about that? You know, has that ever been a detriment to doing ACPs? And then is there sort of anything we can do better when having those conversations when an ACP hasn't been followed through, through either clinical need or because it's been overlooked? It, it's it's hard really yeah i i know um i don't think i can give any more specific advice rather other than at the time when these decisions are made when the mother is very poorly and can't communicate for herself we sometimes wish that we could tap into her prior wishes and her prior stipulations and it's the easiest thing to override that person's prior wishes and and stipulations but if you know that, and if, if there's been such a strong will not to go into hospital, then at least you'll probably at least consider and fight the pools for that a little bit. And if then there's still a lot of distress from the family and the relatives, then admitting is fine, but you're also reducing the, the distress of the, the wider family a little bit as well and, and, and doing the right thing. But I think more often than the scenario that you've described, we have zero insight into the previous mindset of the, the unconscious patient that is in front of us and we just we just don't know and i think that's that's a terrible shame but yes of course these things will happen where there'll be a co conflict from the two sides and, and we have to sort of find the middle way and i don't think she did the wrong thing i think admitting in severe distress is fine i think most people who say prior to that i never want to go into hospital thank you very much and then when they're in real distress they do go into hospital and they're okay with it as long as they don't have to stay for too long then I, th I think that's okay. There's a compromise there somewhere. I think that's really helpful, though, to know that actually for you at the, in the hospital setting, it's more often that there isn't a plan than, than you feel that you've done the wrong thing against someone's wishes, which I think, um, you know, that's powerful, actually. Yeah. I think just in, yeah. and in future, in future, I think, Elise, um, sorry to, to butt in there. I think in future, a lot more people will create little video messages and there'll be sort of apps and various things that come up might make it more complex for us but you know um you or rachel or community palliative care might go in and the, the wife says there's a little video message for you before you see him uh and then it sort of outlines these are my values kind of thing and you have to watch the video message before you see the patient you know so that could be interesting well mark i mean genuinely we could go on all day and, and i heard your radio four chat probably a year or two now about um digital legacy and i've used that a lot with my patients but not to sort of recording to the clinician so that's 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 actually quite an exciting way forward, isn't it? As, as novel as that sounds now, I'm sure in 10 years time, we'll be thinking, of course, that wasn't you.
Fantastic. <laughs> Rachel, any final closing comments from yourself? No, I think just to say thank you. It's been really interesting. And, you know, as ever, you know, I think I, I'm up to speed with advanced care planning. It's always helpful to learn more things and new things. So thank you. Yeah. And again, thanks from, from myself as well, Mark. We are really grateful for your time this morning. Is there any sort of closing comments you would like to make or are you, you're happy to go and sort out your car at the garage now? And I'm sure other, other car garages are available. <laughs> well, it's, it's an engine problem. So it's quite central, really. So, and I must say, I haven't actually specified any advanced care plans for my car. But maybe I need to go and think about this now. Sound, sounding critical now. <laughs> Lovely. Well, thanks for your time, everybody. And, and we'll leave it there. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.